Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. Norwegian violinist Eldbjörg Hemsing seeks to introduce classical music to new audiences all over the world. She has recorded three award-winning albums, premiered several highly acclaimed new compositions, and appears in the world's most celebrated concert halls, including Lincoln Center, the Kennedy Center, and the National Center for the Performing Arts in Beijing. She has performed with orchestras around the world, including the Oslo Philharmonic, the Vienna Symphony, the Zurich Chamber Orchestra, the Shanghai and the Hong Kong Philharmonic Orchestras, and many more. She has appeared as Norway's cultural ambassador at venues such as the United Nations and the Shanghai Expo, and has traveled the world with Norway's royal family. Some of her many roles to make music more accessible are as co-founder of the Hemsing Festival and the artistic director of Spire, an innovative annual mentoring program within the Nordland Music Festival in Bordeaux, which promotes and supports young artists in their personal and artistic development. Welcome, Elbjörg. It's so great to have you on One Symphony today. I'd just love to start asking you about how you started playing the violin. I know your mom was a violinist and your father was a park ranger. So I'd love to just hear about how that combination created who you are. Well, thank you for having me. It's uh, such a great pleasure. And uh, um, well, yeah, I started playing the violin when I was, I think, around five and a half or something like this. And my mom, she's a violinist. And I also have an older sister who plays the violin. So my upbringing was very much violent, <laughs> let's say. <laughs> and my father, he worked in nature. And that just became such a natural kind of way of um Growing up, I also I come from a place where uh, it's a very, very small village in the middle of nowhere. So you're really immersed in nature and by nature. So that's also a nice thing to look back on now, now that I'm a bit more in the big cities. How do you when you when you when you are in a small village, do you ever did you ever have the like big fish in a small pond kind of syndrome? Because I would imagine <laughs> there weren't that many young virtuoso violinists growing up or, or were there? I mean, I, the way I remember it is that in, um, in our house, in our family home, it was just really natural to just have music around and to play and have fun with it. Uh, there were a lot of young children who played the instrument, but to various degree of how serious it was done. But what really was the main focus of, I think, also my mom, but also my sister and I was to have um, fun with it, to have a good time with it. It was very little pressure in that sort of thinking about being uh, 
uh, let's say a virtuoso is not the word used. Uh, so it was more like just, you know, have fun, have a good time with it. Uh, of course, need to practice and prepare, but um, we're really lucky to have some amazing times uh, in that setting. It wasn't too much pressure. And then once we, uh, and I, you know, played more and more concerts and started to travel a bit, um, of course, it became a bit more structured, a bit more serious, but it was, uh, it was a good time. And so your style is classical. And I'm I'm curious how you how you kind of decided, okay, I'm gonna go study classical music seriously and, and where that happened. And can you also talk about the some of the folk music traditions and how those influenced your classical playing and how you kind of decided to focus on classical and maybe how folk music plays into that? I don't quite remember how my relationship with classical music started except that it was something that was just I was just surrounded by quite simply my mom used to always play uh, pieces at home and or put on recordings or it was just one of those things where I'm so happy that I was introduced with early because it really created such an incredible bond with classical music and I just love how much you're able to express with particularly classical music. And uh, to me, the violins has just become my voice in a way. It's my way of expressing and, uh, and find the colors and all those things. Folk music is, of course, a huge part of this valley in Valdres, where I'm from. Um, it's very specific um, folk music in, in Norway, in that sense that you have very big geographical differences in what um, the tunes sound like, what rhythm you play, and I think also to some extent what type of um, uh, tuning you use. So in Norway, the national instrument is the Hardanger fiddle, which by the name comes from Hardanger, which is on the west coast of Norway. And this instrument has um, eight or nine strings. So unlike classical violin, which has four, so the Hardanger fiddle has um, four on top and four or five underneath that resonates once you play on the instrument. And you can tune this instrument up to 27 different ways, depending on what time of day it is, what you want to play, what your mood is. So it's quite a lot of variation just in that itself. And say, oh, this is the Valdres rhythm. This is the rhythm of my valley, basically. And you have the same type of tradition in various other valleys throughout Norway, particularly in the lower part of Norway where I'm from. So this is something that I also grew up with and is a very big part of the identity, I would say, in many ways. But um, for me particularly classical music and the violin. Um, I just have such a love for it. And it really felt like it was you know, my voice. And that seems more uh, part of the tradition in Norway, because you have, of course, Krieg that everybody knows, but before him you had Ola Bull and Svensson <laughs> and Halverson and this incredible composer also Borgström, who you've uh, yeah. <laughs> recorded his violin concerto, uh, which is an incredible piece. Somebody who, who is a little more kind of Austro-Germanic you know, center yes. who, who kept those roots <laughs> a little bit more. Um, but I'd love to hear maybe about that folk music tradition interweaving itself in Norway and how that also plays into your new album, The Arctic, that, that just came out. 
Yes. So, I mean, all the, first of all, very well done on the research. <laughs> Those are a lot of names that not everyone would know about. But, the, the, uh, I mean, so many of the composers you mentioned, uh, they are from the National Romantic era. Even Borgström, who was a little bit later, he was just um, after it. But what was really special, I think, in many ways, um, about starting with the very beginning, like with Ulle Bull, um, he was this... I mean, he, you can call him the Paganini of the North. He was this incredible superstar, incredibly virtuoso. He was also rumored to look incredibly handsome <laughs> and was really a very influential person in this way. He got to know lots of, you know, kings and queens and royals and people who were in power. And we're talking about like early 1800 now. And he traveled around. He was from Bergen, which is on the west coast of Norway also. But he had such an influence outside of Norway's border. And even in the US, he even, I think he bought his own state, which he called Uleana. It didn't go very well with his state. It was, I don't know what it turned into afterwards, but it didn't last very long. But he was such a, I mean, he was such a character. Reading about him and following in his footsteps, it's, you almost will not believe your ears and eyes to some extent. Um, but he was mm, super influential for Norway's identity um, in terms of the sound of Norway. And at this point in Norway, in the early 1800s, um, Norway was uh, had been in union with Sweden and Denmark for many hundred years. Norway was a really poor country. There were none, none of the big decisions were taken in Norway. Um, that would uh, be about the country's development. All of this would happen either in Sweden or in Denmark, depending on who was in power at the time. Um, so Norway was really a farmer's country. There was nothing, not very much else going on. But Ole Bull, he was incredibly important for the musical identity in that way that he traveled around everywhere. Uh, he was the godfather of Edvard Grieg. And when Edward Grieg was sent to Leipzig to do his education, and he came back to uh, Bergen and showed Ole Bull some of his newly learned skills in the lead tradition and the very like, Germanic um, old traditions, it was actually Ole Bull apparently who told him you have to travel um, through Norway and discover the real identity of Norway. And by that he meant folk music and listening to all the different tunes, the different styles, the rhythms, the tonalities. Um, and to really create the Norwegian sound. And in this time, in the 1800s, it was all about trying to build or answer the question, what is really Norwegian? And that was on, not only in art, but in the whole field <laughs> of like, who are we as Norwegians? And how can we kind of find our way with the new freedom? And Ole Bull, he was also the first person who brought the Hardanger fiddle onto the concert stages. Because earlier, it was kind of more of a... Um, the fiddler's instrument in that sense that it was very something that was mostly just played for either dancing tunes maybe in weddings maybe in situations where you wouldn't necessarily think of in the concert stages but he was the first one who brought it to the concert stages and that definitely had a huge impact on how it was being used afterwards and with Edward Krieg I mean he's of course has his own sound in a way he's not you wouldn't say that, oh that's folk music from Norway I mean it's definitely Edward Grieg and his tonality and his sound but there are so many examples where he's either written down or taken inspiration from folk music uh, for instance in the morning mood which is a, this maybe quite famous uh, tune by Edward Grieg and this is literally the tuning of Hardangefiddle the strings underlying the five strings underneath so this is just the, the tonality, the, the difference between the, um, the strings is what also captured him very much. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, with the other ones you mentioned, like Halvorsen and Svensson, they also followed very much in this tradition of the very national romantic of a kind of uh, the very sunny side of Norway. You know, you can imagine fjords and fjell and mountains and, you know, the very Norwegian flags and maybe even like the when the apples bloom in Hardanger in the springtime. Like this is really the, what this music brings to the mind in, in a very like romantic way, but in a very nice way also. And um Boyström, who I came across really by chance, was also a little bit part of this, but he was already moving a little bit away from the very national romantic sense. He was more Germanic um, and a little bit, actually, unfortunate for him, a little bit bad timing in that he just fell in between the shares of, okay, now national romanticism is done, over, where do we go next? And he was kind of a little bit in between those two shares. But uh, it's really fantastic music and it's a lot of fun to discover big parts of music history. Um, also just history in itself and the impact of others, but also what the, how much the sound has developed over these hundreds of years. And just shifting gears a little bit, you've also recorded concertos like the Dvorak Concerto and the Shostakovich Concerto. And I think of your music, it's in this new music, this new album is so beautiful in terms of how you express, you know, the idea of nature and, and what the composer, I think, is feeling. So, so you kind of have this deep heart gargantuan expression but at the same time you have this virtuosity for something like you know the Shostakovich concerto and I also <laughs> love the theme of what you're going for for the Arctic Suite uh, because it, it talks about these big ideas of our place in, in nature our place in the universe like how music can respond to issues of climate change without being divisive and sort of transcending debate or, or, or politics and I'm just going back to Shostakovich because he was stuck in the in the midst of a very dangerous political situation, but he created this incredible concerto. I'm just wondering if you thought of those connections when you put this um, latest album together. I mean, I definitely have had and do continue to have a lot of um, questions for myself on what does it really mean to be a classical musician today? Is it to continue protecting and caring for a legacy and a music history? Or is it um, a way of looking forward? What should we focus on? What should we play? I mean, there are a lot of big questions um, that's not necessarily always a given answer to. But what I found really important is to try to use music in a way where you can say something different about something that really means so much to and matters to, to so many of us. And for the issue of, um, like you mentioned, climate change, I mean, how can you not be affected by it? But I found after all the reports that come out, and it's always, you know, it's the crisis, it's a crisis, crisis. There's no doubt it's a crisis. At the same time, it's also very, I found it hard to kind of relate to numbers like 1.5 or 3.5. And like, it doesn't quite, you know, it, it's of course, it's very, obviously a massive difference, but at the same time, it's, it, you kind of get a bit numb to it after a while. And I wanted to try to create something a little bit, different instead of only talking about the devastation and the changes really wanted to try through the music and music parts to show what it is like now and how we should preserve that how we should um, also see the beauty of it and see the all the life that is there um 
And I also found it really important to have works uh, that are newly written and are also in a style of today, more than only 100 years back, let's say. So there were many of uh, various angles to look into how to creating this album. And I'm extremely happy that um, I could do it because we were quite... Um, uh, we had some challenges thrown our way, uh, like COVID <laughs> and close borders and all that stuff. But uh, we finally got to do it. And I am just, uh, it's pretty amazing to see the response to it. It's an amazing album, and you talked about you. Uh, it being a film score for the concert hall, and you just collaborating with Jacob Shea, who's um, involved in Blue Planet and has worked with Hans Zimmer and has some really beautiful music. Uh, yeah. Can you talk about how you kind of need that storytelling aspect? And in, in, in this goes throughout, this runs throughout your entire album, but I think it's particularly poignant on the Arctic Suite, which is sort of the, the, the main attraction of the album. Uh, but can you talk about the dramatic presentation, you know, that you're going for, I think, to, to probably speak to as many people as possible and how that came to be? Was that a collaboration with you and the composers? And um, obviously your your sp specific sound and style, you know, lends credence to that. But can you kind of talk about that <laughs> dramatic aspect? Yes. I, you know, I remember it really well first time I heard the music to Blue Planet and I almost didn't um, need to see the pictures with it the actual documentary because i just thought the the the, the sound and and the, um, the soundscape which is so powerful and i thought when we talk about the arctic which is definitely so much connected to an audiovisual journey i really wanted to have music that could hopefully do that for a listener as well give you as a listener lots of images and the feeling of having your own perception of what you're watching as you listen to it and so that was kind of the first step on what is the sound of this album when we talk about the Arctic. Um, it's very easy in a way, I think, when you think about Arctic to think of like, you know, cracking ice or really harsh sounds or really um, very, very hostile environment. But the Arctic is so much more and it has such a beauty to it and such a warmth, so much life. And there's um, just, it's, it's a really, really, really special place. And I knew that if I wanted to try capture this, we needed someone who could um, almost feel like use words in the music and, and be really, really communicative. I'm really grateful that Jakob Shea said yes to do this because it's a really amazing piece and it's, uh, um, it's so grand and so massive and we have such a symphonic, grand symphonic sound to go with it. And um, that's really exactly what I hoped for it would be. Thank you. 
And also you have, uh, there's, I'm curious if there's the video of the entire thing, but you've created sort of a music video out of this. And I've seen the sea ice melting, which is phenomenal. Yeah. It's almost like a documentary unto itself without words, like <laughs> you said. Could you kind of talk about how people can access that, but also if orchestras want to access this music to perform it, um, or even to have you solo, how, how would they go about doing that? So this is also the big idea, so to have it as a concert program, because it is a very audiovisual journey, and we filmed so much footage from being up in the Arctic. It's really a way of giving the listener a whole experience. And you can imagine with huge screens and like full symphony orchestra, and just kind of giving the context of what this music is about. Um, that's very possible to do, and of course, would love to do so. And it's it's pieces that are meant to hopefully reach uh, a quite a wide audience. Uh, classical music is just the most fantastic thing to explore, I think. And I really wish that more people would have the uh, be explore and would they be exposed to it. And hopefully, um, pieces like the Arctic, which has such a clear and very distinct meaning behind each piece could be something that people are curious about and would like to listen to. And can you talk about some of the other pieces on the program? And is that if, if an orchestra were to perform that in concert, does, does the whole album come with that? Or how, how do you kind of bring the, the theme together? And, and are there any specific composers uh, or pieces of note. I mean, they're all so beautiful, you know, from the Ola Bull to the Grieg to, to the Howard, A Hidden Life, which is s such an incredible music. Um, yeah. And then there's also the the kind of folk music and the in the Sami tradition by Fruta Fjellheim, who, who's the composer who was also featured in Frozen. I feel like there's such an incredible mixture of, of something for everybody on this recording. And when you say kind of classical music, that almost, that term doesn't do it justice. It's so much more than that. It's so much more expressive <laughs> yeah. than, than what we think about classical music. So are there any other pieces that you also put video to, or that you had a particularly spiritual experience reviving or discovering with some of the living composers? Yes, absolutely. And first, I just have to say, I totally agree with you about this, uh, putting a label on anything. I think in general, it's super important not to and just uh, listen. And then whether you like it or not, that's the all that matters. You know, it doesn't actually matter so much whether it fits into this teeny tiny category or this big one. Like it's, uh, that's really irrelevant. So I'm very happy that you say that. And uh, secondly, yes, we did make quite a few videos because being up in, this was recorded in the Bode, which is the Arctic um, city. Um, which is, by the way, becoming the European cultural capital next year. And they have a fantastic orchestra there, which is the Arctic Philharmonic, which is divided between Bode and Tromsø cities. But um, we recorded in uh, mid-June last year. And um, at that point, it's, of course, Midnight Sun in the north. So we had so much fun and so much footage from this trip, just being there because it, you know, it never got dark. So we could get all these different times of day where the sun gives, gives slightly different colors, which was really, really fantastic. And then we also had um, some travels around in the area and went to a, the massive glacier, which is called Svartisen, the black ice, to also get more footage from there. So all the pieces have very different meaning but they all have a very specific nature-related uh, themes.
So you mentioned, for instance, the uh, Hidden Life uh, by James Newton Howard, which I love this piece also very much. It's really fun to play. Um, and the meaning behind this piece, for instance, a hidden life, you can imagine when you see um, an iceberg, how much is hidden beneath the surface and there's so much you cannot see. And this is also very much about what the Arctic is. On the surface, everything looks really either white or just really harsh and not like not um, livable in a way. But once you look a little bit below and you can see what's hidden, you can really see all that's going on. And we do have quite a lot of videos out. So if I may give a little YouTube plug in here at this point, <laughs> that's that's where you can find them on my YouTube channel. That's wonderful. <laughs> I'd also love to ask you about your collaboration with Tan Dun, the Fire Ritual Concerto and the Rhapsodies and the uh, Fantasia that, that yeah. comes from his upbringing, surrounded by folk music in terms of Peking opera. So I'm wondering if you can talk about how that collaboration came about and how you saw the connection between the two different cultures and its rituals or folk idioms. Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, I met Tandun now it's, what is it now, 14 years ago? Yeah, 14 years ago. Uh, so I have known him quite some time already. And that was when we were representing our countries at the World Expo in Shanghai. And that was the first time I met Tandun. And uh, he's such a fantastic person, an amazing composer, and just such an um, inspiration all around. And I've been really fortunate to be able to play a lot with him over the years. I've been Every year, multiple trips to China. We play together in the US at Lincoln Center, amongst other places, and in Europe, many places. And he is just such a creative force. And uh, I've also been really fortunate to premiere a few works of his. I think by now, three violin concertos at least, and a couple of chamber pieces. And and it's really always incredibly fun to work with him. He's uh, very unexpected in his approach to things. So you always have to expect the unexpected with him, which I really do love. With these pieces you mentioned for the concerto fire ritual he actually wrote it um, for me and there are many reasons why it was called fire ritual but one of the little link with it is that my name is a very nordic name um Elbjörg, and uh, the first part Elg, uh, means fire and the second part means protector so I'm the fire protector of the North. And then the piece is called Fire Ritual, as a ritual where the fire is in the center. And this piece is also about two worlds combined together. So you have the, the real world and the underworld um, for the past souls. And then Tandun, the con conductor, is the shaman who brings this together while I'm the protecting the fire around it. So it's, it's a whole thing, but it's a, it's a really fantastic piece. And um, Tandun, he's so brilliant with um, writing the most beautiful melodies, which is a pure joy to play as a violinist, obviously, to have melodies to play. And uh, it's always really, really fun to work with him. Can you talk about going back to Grieg and Vivaldi? You have the Grieg violin sonatas, which as a conductor, I've done some Grieg and concert, you know, obviously the piano concerto, the Pierre Ginn suites, and yeah. um, a lot of the string ensemble music, which I think, I'm sure I think you've played as well. Can you talk about recording that and also a composer like Vivaldi, who comes even further back from, from Grieg 
uh, I mean, almost if we're going back to the idea of classical music, kind of starting with that, I mean, it's Baroque, but it's kind of starting that classical tradition of the concerto and really popularizing it and putting a story to it. Can you talk about your transformation of the Vivaldi winter? Like you didn't just perform the, the concerto, but you actually did an adaptation or a meditation on it. Can you kind of talk about maybe that and specifically, but also just reinventing the classics in general? I'm a little bit mixed on the whole reinventing the classics because it has to be done in such a way where you feel like you're really not just making a variation of something or changing it too much. It has to still stay true to the the original. And if it's also not different enough, you kind of wonder, well, why? What's the point? Then just play the original. <laughs> but So it's kind of, I feel always a bit torn between these two. And it has to be done really, really well in order for it to work to be able to stand on its own two feet and yet kind of give you a sense of, oh yeah, I know this piece. But with the winter meditation, which I think is the one you're talking about, one of the reasons why we wanted to do this was it was just before Christmas. Now it's uh, yeah a bit over a year ago. So what was this? Christmas of 21? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm like getting confused with it. So, um, and uh, it was... Um, I was playing uh, one movement of the winter of Vivaldi at the Nobel Peace Prize concert in Oslo with the Oslo Philharmonic. And around this time, it was a bit like, well, why don't we just create a kind of a more meditative little piece that also is, it, of course, it's winter, but it's more than just Vivaldi's winter. This has to do with creating a feeling of, you know, snow coming down and it's really quiet. It's a good feeling. It's really the peaceful winter. And I'm I'm very happy with how they did it, but uh, it's it, it's always tricky this thing I think when you take something that is so beloved and so known and creating a new version because it really has to be well done in order for it to work I think. But I don't know how do you feel about it? Oh, I love it. I mean the the yeah? well the, your, not your interpretation necessarily, but <laughs> no, but I mean in general like reinventing classics. I don't necessarily reinvent the classics. I mean I, I yeah. do a lot of new music like you do, and I try to incorporate various different mediums from paintings to videos but but i think yeah everything kind of speaks for itself and Mm. what what the composer really wanted actually vivaldi i think for his time was quite Mm. clear on what he kind of was going for and even mozart and beethoven while they kind of had limited ways to mark up their music as opposed to somebody like gustav mahler or richard strauss the music i think comes across very clearly so, so yeah, like I, like you, I'm mixed about it. I try to do what the composer intended. You know, I try to get the metronome markings and, and get the dynamics and the style. But right. the older I get, I feel the more you can kind of tinker with that because it, it seems like even the great composers, all of their music is, is a work in progress. Yeah. You know, like when you, you leave something, it's not completely done and it's up to people maybe two years from now or 200 years from now to help you complete it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) um, So yeah, it's, I mean, we're we're lucky we get to have this incredible Um, tradition to create out of. And I think also that everything builds on each other. Like it's, it's so like one of my passions is to find, you know, connections between like different styles and different genres and epics (laughs) of music. And, And the more you kind of look at that, it's like, there are just so many things where, I mean, and I'm sure the composers weren't even aware many times what they were using. In the diatonic scale system, you only have so many options by the by the game of chance. So, but, yeah, but exactly. it's really not about 
what you use, it's how you use it. It's, it's yeah, what you do with it. With all, with all these new things and in, in, in interpreting the Arctic in this way and nature and, and bringing all and, and making this such a personal experience <laughs> for everyone, I think what you're doing is, is so wonderful. It's been great to speak with you, and I'm hoping that everybody will check out Arctic. Uh, you can get it wherever you listen to your music. And Elbjörg, thank you so much for joining me on One Symphony. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us on One Symphony. Thanks to Elbjörg Hemsing for sharing her performances and insights. You can get more info at www.elbjörgmusic.com. Works on the show today included The Arctic Suite by Jacob Shea, The Return of the Sun and Under the Arctic Moon by Froda Fjellheim, Pierre Ginsuite and Last Spring by Edward Grieg, and A Hidden Life by James Newton Howard. Thank you to all the amazing performers featured on today's show, including Elbjörg Hemsing, the Arctic Philharmonic, Froda Fjellheim, and the New York Philharmonic and Leonard Bernstein. Thanks to Sony Music Entertainment for helping to make this episode possible. Thank you to Kim at Johnson & Stories for editing this episode. You can always find more info at onesymphony.org, including a virtual tip jar if you'd like to support the show. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the music. <laughs>